Welcome to the Legit Lady Podcast, where we feature women who are nailing it in life. Hey, Legit Lady listeners, this is your host, Julie Fetterman, and welcome to the podcast where we feature impressive women to inspire the world. Pretty fun, right? And this week, I've got some great updates for you. So have you ever listened to the podcast and said, gee, I wish I could take Julie out for a coffee, but maybe you don't live in Toronto or maybe you don't know me. Maybe we just have never met and you're nervous and that's okay. Well, regardless of whether you want to take me out for coffee or not, and you're just a fan of the podcast and you want to find another way to help support, I've just started my own coffee page. And what this is, it's a really cute, quirky way for you to be able to spend a few bucks and just acknowledge the podcast. And so it's the same amount of money. In fact, it's probably less money than taking me out for an actual coffee, considering how expensive coffee is nowadays. And so the website is coffee. So it's actually ko-fi.com slash legit lady podcast. So it's like Kofi, like ko-fi.com slash legit lady podcast. And you can throw me a couple of quick words saying, Hey, loved your episode, the end and buy me a coffee. And that's also really, really appreciated. And with that, with more ways to spread the love with the Legit Lady podcast, we're going to go and take a look at some of our latest reviews. And we're going to take a look at Rostan's review. And oh my gosh, this title is amazing. It says, to accompany with a glass of Sauvignon. Wow, I love it. Tell me what you're drinking when you're listening to this. <laughs> I love that. Okay, so this is for the wine drinkers. It says, I really enjoy this podcast. The legit lady really deciphers what it is and what it takes to be a strong, successful, and complete woman navigating this world. Julie asks her guests the meaningful questions that make us listeners put ourselves in their shoes. It is more particularly interesting as the content of the episodes really is to talk to the millennial generation in the language that they understand. Well, I hope whether you're a millennial or not, you understand what we're saying. Hopefully it's clear. But thank you, Rostan. And our next review here says, Deep and profound. Legit lady does goes to places goes to places that most podcasts are afraid to go i feel like it's like star trek like going whenever has no one has gone before whatever this uh back to the review what i love about this show is how deep it's like bold and deep julie asks questions she's incredibly insightful and intuitive and in how she draws out pure genius from her interviewees she brings out important social issues give them a real human element and uncovers truths that we can all relate to thank you for your strong voice uh julie and the remarkable guests you bring in well, yes, my guests are remarkable. And thank you for the referrals. Thank you for writing in. Thank you for pinging me and saying, oh my gosh, I know it's an incredible person that you should reach out to. And, uh, and that's how we're going to grow. 
So thank you for that. It's really exciting to see the podcast getting more listeners and more activity and stuff like that. So if you like what we're doing, please do us a favor. Give us a quick review on Stitcher, on iTunes, uh, rate, review, subscribe, and share with anyone in your life who you think would benefit from listening to some of these great stories. So you can take a look. This is actually our first double digit episode. So episode number 10, really exciting. And we have nine other incredible episodes that each feature very diverse and interesting women. And if you'd like to reach out to us, if there's something that you think is cool and newsworthy or a question you'd like us to explore before the episode, or you just want to say hi, feel free to reach out to us at legitladypodcast at gmail.com. This week, I want to spend a little bit more time introducing our guest, And this guest is someone I hold very near and dear to my heart. And I met her many years ago at a blues dance. And some of you who might be listening is like, what is a blues dance? Pretty much where dancers show up and they dance to blues music. It's pretty much what you would think. And this guest was part of the entertainers that were going to actually play the blues music that the rest of us were going to dance to. And it was very funny because at this blues dance, it was a very small location where it took place. And I had at least four or five different people running up to me and thinking that I was the singer of this band, which is hilarious because that's definitely not what I do. But because we're both kind of petite, brunette, whatever, I, I think people just saw that and they're like, oh, it's a dimly lit room. We, we apparently are the same person. That being said... She's so wonderful that I took it as such a compliment. Our guest this week generously shares a very detailed experience of trauma that she experienced in this podcast episode. And although it's become very popular in social media, which is not necessarily a bad thing because of, say, public outcry, I really don't want you to listen to this story as like a hashtag. This is information, powerful information. And regardless of whether you identify as a man or a woman or whomever, no one should have to deal with this type of thing. Unfortunately, sexual abuse is too common. And many people, including you potentially who is listening, might think that this could never happen to you. And that's where you're wrong. And that's really scary. That's why it's up to us to do the little things that we can and the big things that we can to help educate, to challenge a messed up status quo, to call out crappy behavior, to hopefully do what we can to make this world a little bit better. And in my personal opinion, speaking up is one of the strongest acts of resistance that you can possibly do. And that happens on different timelines for different people. Our guest is brave. I am so proud to introduce such an incredibly talented singer, songwriter, and front woman of the Sugar Devils, Irene Torres. So Irene, we are so excited to have you on the podcast. 
you're more than welcome to take as many sips of your lovely drink as possible. <laughs> <laughs> we are drinking today, Glenn Fittick. Thank you. 12. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> it's got a nice chocolatey aftertaste. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh, I know. I know. I haven't even taken a sip yet. I was going to cheers you. Mm. <laughs> Salute. I'm super rude. Cheers. <laughs> no, I'm no, like no. already you're delved good. in. <laughs> That's why we have the bottle in front of us. I feel like this is a thing. Um, most of the interviews that I have, there's always a bottle of something in front oh, of us. Oh, good. Yeah, it's the tongue wagon. Yeah. <laughs> good strategy. Right, right? I know, I know. It's <laughs> part of the plan, not part of the plan. But listen, so you know how this works. We get right. to know you through 10 main questions, lots of great conversation throughout. And in fact... You, madame, are so prepared. You came in here with a full-fledged, beautiful notebook. I was like, what? Are you taking class here? What's going on? <laughs> Tell um, us a bit about this. This is really cool. Yeah. Oh, thank you. You're very kind. Well, I guess the easy answer is that I'm a visual person. And um, I like to, so I kind of like to, pro- I, I value process is probably the best way to put it. And for me... Um, I think that it's important to sort of stay on track to what I want to say versus kind of divert in lots of other areas that could leave us busy for a while. But, but this is the way that I sort of keep myself honest. What is it that I want to express? Why, why do I feel it's important and how does it all fit together? But this is, I do this for this podcast. I do it for like any, anything in my life, really any project, any album, any songwriting session. I, I like to make notes. I'm very big on note taking. You see me here with my piles of post-it notes. It's kind of hilarious, but uh, I hear you. <laughs> I see. Yes, this resonates with you. I'm in a good crowd. <laughs> yeah, I, I have it at my corporate job as well. I have mm-hmm. a whole bunch of, of post-its just around me. And we obviously have to log everything in the computer afterwards. Sure. But it just it helps me with my process. How like Why do you need to write it down on paper before you put it into the computer? Right? Um It's funny because I had the same thing when I was in school too. I studied science. And so we would sit in lecture hall. We'd have the slides printed out, but I'd actually rewrite the content on the slides in separate notes. And I think for me, it's my way of fully pausing and slowing down and fully understanding what I'm writing down. Mm -hmm. gives me more time to think about it. I feel like typing goes by too quick. If I don't actually write it, it doesn't spark the same neural pathways yes. for me to comprehend what's happening. Maybe I'm totally wrong on the science here. Maybe someone will come back and, and say like, Julie, you're making shit up here. No, but- <laughs> I think you're like spot on. <laughs> how about you? Do you have a particular reason? Uh, well, memory is actually definitely probably how that got started. Mm-hmm. I would write lyrics over and over again. Just when I was like learning songs, mm-hmm. I would write them out because just having the printed lyric sheet would not really get me to where I needed to be mm-hmm. for the actual gig, right? I, I really... I was aware that for a long time, I was one of those singers that had her music stand at every gig. And I really wanted to be free of that. Right. And definitely the best way I could get to that outcome was through just repetition. So writing it out was sort of a therapeutic way to just repeat the song over and over again and internalize it. Mm-hmm. But then, I mean, I think I've, I've always gravitated towards writing in general from a really young age. I used to write poems 
at six years old to the moon and stuff like that. Oh. So I was always writing and drawing. It was like a comfort for me, my own, my own space, my own time. Have you kept those somewhere? Uh, somewhere, somewhere <laughs> there around. I, like they weren't in notebooks. They were like in old empty calendars and stuff like that at the time. But, uh, and then I always had sketchbooks and they ended up lending themselves well to brainstorming and other things. And that kind of progressed to more advanced note taking when school really kicked into gear. Oh man, <laughs> that's so cool. It would actually be really interesting to go back and see some of those things that you wrote when you were young and see what flavor ideas or, or what headspace you might've been in. Yeah. Back then. You know, I think I think I always imagine it's going to be cooler than it actually is. Because like <laughs> present tense Irene going back to read nine-year-old Irene's <laughs> journal is not as riveting as I would like to think. Oh. <laughs> so, you know, it's a lot of social awkwardness and, you know, trying to figure out how to blend in and all of yeah. that. But, yeah. but it is kind of cool to have these little snapshots of your life mm-hmm. throughout the years. You know, I have like books and books of journals that thank God my mom is so kind and is happy to store them in her house. Aww. But, uh, but yeah, maybe later on that'll be a kick for my kid to look at. Yeah. Like a time capsule. Yeah. Like a really personal time capsule. Right. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I think that's a great transition to kick sure. things off. Question one, right? which is what advice would you give to your teenage self? Speaking of social weirdness. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's a, that's true. That is the height of social weirdness in <laughs> one's life for some people anyways, definitely for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I, I wasted a lot of time being wrapped up in that self-perceived awkwardness. Mm-hmm. So if I could give myself a piece of advice that like personally, I would have been able to put into practice if, if I really took it in, it probably would speak to um, not letting fear paralyze you. Like don't, Mm. don't let yourself be paralyzed from actually going for the things that you want. Don't be afraid to declare intention, Mm. you know, because I think I spent a lot of time talking myself out of trying things. Mm. Um, you know, whether it was uh, even trying singing, like I'm a singer now, that's what I've been doing for years. But as a child, even though that was something I enjoyed, it was never something I really like allowed myself to fully explore. Was that totally self-inflicted or was it anything else in your life? No, man, it was totally self-inflicted. What? And that, and that oh. is like, that's the thing. Like you can really paralyze yourself from doing things that later on in life you find that you were meant to be doing. Mm-hmm. And if you had started off earlier, who knows what might've been the case or who knows what you would have become if you had allowed yourself to try this thing, you know? So, so, oh, um, I have this, like, do you know Frank Herbert, the writer of Dune? Okay. So Frank Herbert, sci-fi Dune. Sure. Really beautiful visual masterpiece. Uh, They like air it a few times a year. Uh, But anyways, okay. So it's this amazing story. And he has this quote that if I could tell myself as a teenager to make it like my life mantra, I would. 
Do you want me to tell you what it is? Yes, please. Okay. Lay it on me. She's she's Googling. Um, I'm, I actually have it saved. Oh, oh, she already has it saved. There's because no Google needed. <laughs> it's like, it's a prayer that I want, that I want to internalize. Yes. So here please it share is. share it. It's from um, the Dune Chronicles, book one. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Whoa. 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 Also, can you please just read me stories when I'm... <laughs> you have such a great story time voice. You're very sweet. No, it's true. <laughs> it was it was funny because when you had called me earlier today to, to talk about the timing for today's mm-hmm. podcast, I, I got off the phone and I just turned to, to my partner and I was like, man, everyone's going to love listening to her. Just even her, her speaking voice is so good. Obviously, your singing voice is absolutely mind-blowing, <laughs> but... Oh, wow. Well, I'm glad you like it. uh, But that is a powerful quote. I think, I think it's true. Like if you really deal with yourself, like be prepared if to, you know, once you declare what your intention is, once you say, you know, I want to be a singer or I want to write a book or Mm -hmm. I want to have a family or have a relationship, like whatever it is, the Mm -hmm. thing that you want to achieve it's going to be hard. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's, it's always going to be hard. There's always going to be something that comes up. There's going to always going to be moments of self-doubt and really those moments that you face your fears and you face yourself and your shortcomings and you are able to kind of work past that ego that gets paralyzed with that fear. You know, those are the moments that you really grow. Yeah. And, um, I think these last couple of years have been like, uh, a big opportunity for me to grow. So I'm having to face a lot of those inner demons. <laughs> right. Well, tell me a few examples of, mm. of other risks that you've been taking recently. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hmm. Well, I mean, there's some obvious ones that come to my mind, but I'm not going to put words in your mouth. <laughs> mm-hmm. Risks. Well, this is a risk. Oh, really? You know, really? Being here, <laughs> speaking openly mm-hmm. uh, in such a way that is going to be preserved, you know, like this is, this, this feels risky, but it feels like worth it, you know, because it's connection and it's sharing of information and knowledge. And, you know, you empower me by having this awesome lady podcast where you empower other women. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and hopefully I have something with, worth sharing that other women will find useful. We've been doing this for about five minutes and I'm already inspired <laughs> by you. So yeah, yeah. Uh, you're here for a reason. <laughs> yes, ma'am. <laughs> um, but other risky things, uh, motherhood, motherhood, uh, feels, feels felt like it was really risky, which is why I, didn't really set, I didn't set it as a goal. It wasn't something I was driving towards. It was something I had decided in a lot of ways that, you know, I, I just wasn't ready for, maybe wasn't going to happen. And I mean, who would give me a baby to raise? Yeah. (laughs) That being said, I like, I spent years working as a babysitter to sort of have something on the side. You know, when you run your own business, you kind of need stuff like that Mm -hmm. sometimes, especially if your business is seasonal and there's always downtime. So you've also supported children with special needs too, right? Yeah. That was something that, um, 
happened in the last three years. So that was a big shift. For a long time, I only wanted to do music. And I felt like anytime I veered away from just that one focus, that I was doing myself a disservice and that I wasn't really um, putting my, I wasn't really committing myself. Mm. There was this one quote that like inspired me for many years, but I think maybe also like led me to the wrong conclusion. And it was this idea that when Cortez went to South America, right? And they, they get to the shore, right? And him and all his conquistadores are there but <laughs> but also to like shit up you know <laughs> but like to conquer and mm. get gold and slaves and all of these things and they were committed to that goal they had never been to this land it was a mm. savage land and i put air quotes by the way <laughs> and yep. um and you know he was like we need to be here we need to make this land ours mm-hmm. so we're gonna burn the ships there's no way out of here until we've conquered this place and we can build our own way out of here. And I was like, okay, okay. And I was like, burn your ships, Irene. That's what you gotta do. You gotta burn your ships. You just gotta put it all on the line and say, this is the thing that you're going for and just go for it. Hmm. But I think that served me for a time and that time is over. Hmm. (laughs) So it's good to be, vested and it's good to know that things are going to be challenging and set yourself up to see them through and uh it's good to be tested in those things it's good to sometimes be like man i really want to get out of this thing but i don't know how so i'm just going to stay here till i've worked it out but it's also really good to have balance (laughs) and sometimes you need to be able to walk away from a project in order to have a clear vision when you come back to it in order to achieve it Mm -hmm. your goal that is right what was that tipping point for you between the burn the ships and the maybe we don't burn the ships? <laughs> maybe we just leave one ship yeah. <laughs> just to have a little sail around, yeah. <laughs> take a break, come back to it. Um, well, check out the harbor. <laughs> yeah, check out the harbor. Well, what, what, what was that point? I guess I was really, I'd gotten to a point where I was really burnt out. Um, I was doing every gig I was making every tour that I could happen. Um, and I didn't really feel like I was getting the result that I wanted. So I, I don't know, I had to, I had to kind of like take a moment and, and reanalyze and, and sort of just, I guess, recalibrate is probably a better way to, to, to say it. And that, that gig that you talked about working with this special needs child, mm-hmm. Uh, sort of forced me to do that because here was the situation in in a field that I had long closed the door on. I was not going to take care of anybody else's kids. I was, if maybe if I was lucky enough one day have my own, but this process of, of bonding with these kids and then, you know, um, they're not mine <laughs> right. so, was, was starting to become difficult. And I think it's just because, you know, like it's, it's hard, you love them. Right. And, yeah. and you can maintain relationships with them and stuff. But, but I, I just didn't, I didn't see myself going in that direction. And here was a child that was in need, mm-hmm. you know, he, he needed someone to be there for him. And it's so funny because I thought that I went there to help him. And I, I hope that I did. Um, but in the end, he really helped me. 
He really helped me prioritize. Um, he really helped me say no to things. And uh, my ability to learn how to care for him, which required a sort of reanalysis of how you care for someone because this person in their particular context mm -hmm. needed a different approach. I couldn't approach him with the same mentality that I could, you know, a lot of other kids in different situations. This was right. a child that had a, had a unusual set of circumstances that had left him scared and emotionally vulnerable and not knowing how to self-regulate, not knowing how to fit in, you know, not knowing how to make friends, not knowing how to ask for help or support or even a hug. So we had to learn together, you know, I, I didn't, I stopped prioritizing self-care when I became a neurotically work obsessed person. So, right. so being in this position where it was my job to teach somebody self-care and it was my job to care for him kind of forced me to learn it for myself. So I stopped saying yes to all the gigs and yeah, I started building my tour schedule around his school schedule, mm -hmm. but at the same time, um, I just felt like I had a lot more purpose in my life. You know, I, I love my job. I love making music. I love performing. I love writing songs, but it's also an incredibly selfish pursuit. I do it because it makes me feel good. Mm -hmm. And I love it when it makes other people feel good. I was going to say, I mean, you do but... make a lot of other people happy, but I get what you're saying. <laughs> you know, it's, it's my salvation to do it, mm -hmm. but to, to be able to have a purpose, like, which was this job, taking care of somebody else kind of helped me find, kick that awakening into gear. That's incredible. And is that what inspired you to start a family or was that an organic happy accident kind of thing? <laughs> <laughs> Bold question. Um, well, <laughs> uh, it was an organic happy accident. And because I had spent uh, the last few years with this child, I knew that I could love a little person so, so much and still do great things. Mm -hmm. um, and that was, that was the, the fear before that was the mind killer before. Mm -hmm. How could I, I can't have a family. I want to be successful at work. You know, they tell you that women can have it all, that you can have this successful career and run your house and take care of your babies and be a great partner. But like, I don't <laughs> and think I can crazy, do that. Right? Like I can barely do two <laughs> things on that list. Like if we start doing all the things, I don't think I'm going to do it well. But, you know, after having to do it, because, you know, the call happened, I took the job, I immersed myself in it. I still had a partner. I still had bills to pay. I still had a band to keep busy. Like we, we all, life still had to go on. You mm -hmm. just find ways to kind of stretch yourself a bit, I guess. And when I realized that I was pregnant, um, that fear was gone. I mean, there was, it was replaced by other fears <laughs> really, oh, really quickly, crap. <laughs> but the fear of, um, am I ready to be a mom? Um, or can I be selfless enough to take care of another human forever? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. I'm not afraid anymore. I, I, I do. I, I have that love to give. I know that because I had, I gave it to this other boy for the last few years and it fed me and it made me stronger and better. So with my own baby, that could be amazing. 
And my partner was very supportive and very happy. And I'm really lucky in the sense that I'm with a person that from the get go, um, you know, I would say something like, well, like I, I want to do a cross Canada tour and, but I also want to do X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. And instead of being the person that's like, okay, well you need to be reasonable and like dumb down your goals, ambition, yeah. uh, or, you know, maybe break it up, spread it out. He's like, he's the type of person that will be like, we just need to make a plan, be flexible with the plan and just go for it. So, and, and that was like really refreshing because my plan boyfriend involved, award, <laughs> yeah, crazy ambitions about making albums and going on tours and going to Europe uh, to sing and, you know, all these different things that, you know, maybe you think that when you get older, you're supposed to like talk yourself out of and just dream smaller, but he's never been that way. He's always been the type of person that encourages me to dream big and wants big things for our family. Mm-hmm. Not, you know, so He's also the type of person that was not afraid to literally climb into the band van (laughs) and go on a Canada tour with the band. So after that, I kind of knew that he was in it for the long haul. Yeah, (laughs) that he was in it for the long haul. He didn't think my dreams were stupid and um, that he's not afraid to do the work. Right. So, so that made me really appreciate him. So he's a, he's a great person to have a family with from that sense. Absolutely. Sounds like man, partners take note. That is how you do it. That is how you do it, man. Yeah, very blessed. That is incredible. And I'm not surprised by the self-realization that you came to a couple of years back saying, Hey, I have all this love to give and I'm capable of expressing this compassion towards others. I saw that in you when I met you, I don't even know how many years ago it was. Oh yeah. It's been a, how long has been it been? I don't know. Very sweet of you to say, by the way, I know it's true. I think it's been like seven years at least. Yeah. Yeah. Even when I met you, I, I could tell, like I read people's energy really quickly and I knew this was a girl, not only incredibly wildly talented, but who has so much love and compassion and light to share. Oh. So I, it's no surprise to me that you're an amazing mother. Oh, thank, I, I never said that. No, <laughs> I, I, hey man, but thank you so, yeah. so, so much. It's true. No, it, you are a really great role model. Thank you. Regardless of what you might think to yourself and in, in your own, uh, we all bad days and we things all like have that. Bad days, yeah, you know, but. it's it's a thing. But I really do appreciate appreciate what you've been saying about risk mm-hmm. and combating fear, because mm-hmm. ultimately the worst thing that could possibly happen in most of these situations mm-hmm. is either not going to happen, or it's not going to be anywhere near as bad as your own personal worst case scenario. Right. So that's your opportunity to try on something new, whether it's a perspective, whether it's a course, whether it's a hobby, passion, anything to be able to ultimately grow. Yeah. And that's only going to make you better, more comprehensive person. I agree. I totally agree. And you know what? If the worst does happen and if it is worse than you ever imagined, the great thing about life is that for the most part, it just keeps going. So you're still going to have to wake up tomorrow Yep. and the sun will still rise and the moon will still rise and you will still just eventually find yourself mm-hmm. trugging along, you know, and yep. time does heal, I think. So, but yeah, I mean, if the worst does happen, <laughs> actually I have this friend 
And he has this thing that he would say all the time and it would make us laugh. And I actually don't know why, because it's quite dark. But anytime one of us was going through something, he would say, don't worry, it's going to get worse. (laughs) And the thing is that it oddly enough, like it strengthens you because you're like, yeah, no, shit's just going to keep coming and we're just going to keep going. And that's going to, it's going to be all right. I like that. It's a a good twist on the like, yeah, it gets better. It's going to be great. Yeah. I mean, it it can get better, but it doesn't necessarily mean it will. It it can always get worse too. Yep. 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 What you're going through could always be worse. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. Okay. Well, let's move on to question two here, Mm -hmm. which is what's your proudest accomplishment? Oh man. Oh man. Oh man. Um, I know these questions aren't aren't easy ones. Hmm. Well, okay, so uh, I birthed a human. I Yay. survived, Woo-hoo! and he survived. So that was I felt good about that. Wow. Um, and and was it like traditional natural childbirth or? So, <laughs> Julie, I had this idea in my mind that I was going to have this like magical water birth with like incense burning and like my midwifery team and like birds would like braid my hair and like <laughs> we would all sing and chant and my child would be welcomed into the world <laughs> while my kick-ass playlist was going. But this did not happen for me. Oh. And that was a hard thing to accept because, you know, when you set yourself up for this, this is like a this is a milestone. Having your first child, you're like, okay, it's going to be this way. And maybe it's going to be really scary, but it's okay. And what ended up happening was that my water broke on the 20th and Lucas, my son, wasn't born until the 22nd. Oh no. So I labored at home for two days and that was okay. Like that part shouldn't concern you, I guess. Like, I mean, my midwives and I talked about the plan. The plan was that I would do most of the work at home and then Mm. I would go to the birthing center, which is this beautiful place um, in downtown Toronto where you can have the a private room to like work on your labor give birth in a giant bathtub if you want there's a fireplace a beautiful mural like it fulfilled my checklist of right. scenery and like ambiance yeah birds and included yeah exactly <laughs> it was awesome um but i couldn't seem to progress in my labor enough to get there to get sent there so every couple of hours, a uh, midwife would pop around to my house, check to see how I was doing. Mm-hmm. And they'd say, you haven't really progressed. Oh. Do you want to keep trying or do you want to go to the hospital? So in my mind, I was like, okay, well, if the only thing I need to do is just kind of like ride out the pain, I'm like, okay, I can do that. I'm yeah. just going to like, it's just pain. It's yeah. just a body. You're, You're tough fine. Bitch. You're tough yeah, bitch. That's right. That's right. <laughs> just do it. Just do it. So... Uh, like 18 hours in the bathtub, just like being hosed down because I was like in so much pain. But, but then like, I just, it wasn't happening. And I started to get really worried about Lucas because he was dry in the womb and that can't be healthy. There could be complications. So when they asked me the final time, if I wanted to go to the hospital, I finally just said, yes, this Mm -hmm. is not something I cannot make this happen out of sheer will. Mm -hmm. I can't will myself, my body to do something. It's literally unable to do. And what happened is my husband is very tall and he's a big guy. 
Um, and uh, we made a baby that was literally too big to be physically birthed by me. Oh. So it didn't matter how many <laughs> hours extra I would have spent just trying to make this happen. It was literally impossible. So when we got to the hospital, they were like, you need to have an emergency C-section. Oh. And if you guys want to have kids in the future, you should probably just sign yourself up for the C-section. Mm -hmm. And I was like hugely resistant to this concept because, you know, I've grown up with natural medicine. Mm -hmm. I don't really go to the hospital or the doctor if I can at all avoid it. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I really felt like this natural process in a woman's existence, should they choose to be mothers, had been like fear-mongered by the medical industry for years. Right. And so I really wanted to like avoid that. Mm -hmm. However, I had a great doctor and my midwife was very flexible and just wanted to support me in whatever I wanted to do. And at that point it was evident that what we needed to do was what's best for the baby. Yeah. yeah. So, so it was, a, it was a hard birth. I hemorrhaged. I lost a lot of blood. I became anemic. Lucas stopped wow. breathing when he first was born. Oh my gosh. Um, they called a code pink in the hospital. It was like everybody's hearts stopped for a little bit and then we were all able to collectively exhale when we realized that he was okay and I was okay. Ugh. And, but for a minute there, like it puts everything in perspective. So that was a really difficult thing that I'm really proud that we got through, but, um, I don't know. I don't really know if it's an accomplishment because it was just yeah. like, I, I decided to become a mom. Babies have to come out. They can't stay in there forever. <laughs> no, but that's, that's, that's a huge accomplishment because even removing the ego to say, no, this is an opportunity where we need to get off course. We need to get off the plan because sure. we need to, to do what's best for the situation, not what we plan to do even those types of decisions are hard for many people to make. Yeah, I think it's hard. It's hard to let go to of the idea of how you should birth. You know, mm -hmm. we have all these notions as women, you know, how motherhood is supposed to happen, how things are supposed to go. Right. It's nobody's fault. I mean, it's part of how we're socialized and it's also part of what we do to ourselves. But, but, um, yeah, it you're not any more of a any less of a mother rather because you had a C-section versus a natural birth. You know, you did not fail in this process. It was what needed to happen for the baby happened. Exactly. And motherhood has nothing to do with birth and has everything to do with what you do with this child exactly. that is in your care. That is exactly it. Motherhood is caring for a child. Yeah in your care. That's it. Doesn't yeah. matter. Adopted, C-section, water birth, upside down birth, man, whatever. I'm sure there's some, some very interesting kinds of birth. I have seen <laughs> so many Instagram videos on free birthing. And oh. I, I like, I tried, I tried to do my research before I take on anything. And so I was really like well-versed in this free birthing videos on Instagram. There's like a whole series of them. Oh, it did not happen that way for me though. As I just told you, yeah. <laughs> but some women are incredible. They can really just like do it at home, holding a bookshelf and a table and just get it done. I was gonna say, mm -hmm. my brain goes to like, she's in a meadow in a forest <laughs> and she's just free birthing with yeah. bunny rabbits yeah. <laughs> running uh, about. <laughs> yep, those books exist. I, so I, I read a lot of uh, I'm a May. Is that her name? I'm, am I blanking on her name? She's like the 
the leading mind teacher in uh, midwifery. Mm -hmm. And so she had written a bunch of books on like birthing and I was like high on this literature. <laughs> like I was reading stories about like women that were like overdue, but like taking walks in the forest, hugging a tree during their contractions and then just like walking it out and coming to a cabin and birthing surrounded by positivity and joy. <laughs> and so, and like, you know, I thought like, oh, 10 pound baby, no problem. The midwives have these magical tricks. They just like, shh, shh, and yeah. you know the baby comes out it's all good yeah and uh no man there's limitations to everything and it's good to have a flexible mindset yeah. that's what i learned yeah yeah but okay so when you say accomplishment if you want to know like something i feel like i did accomplish um aside from creating human life sure small yeah, detail sure it's no big deal go on <laughs> um recently i got to be part of this cast uh for a project called obia opera and oh. it was a 21 women cast, uh, 10 dancers, eight singers. I hope I did that math right. And um, nope, I did not. No, it's no. cool. Don't worry. Will you edit that for me? No, no, you're good. You're good. Don't yeah. worry. Okay. <laughs> me so and Mental Matsu, we, we don't get Recently, I was part of a production <laughs> called Obia Opera. <laughs> and it was all women. Right. And... Uh, I got a chance to sing and dance with them on the Sony stage as part of the Fall for Dance Festival this year, which is awesome because wow. I am a singer, not a dancer. And so in about, they gave me a chance and they gave us a month to like work ourselves up to where we needed to be for this performance. So every day I was rehearsing, dancing and singing, um, which was awesome because I was literally sweating my off and, that's amazing um so i was really fit but i was also working my cardio and i was dancing on a really big stage so the whole experience just like fed me so much it made me grow it made me uncomfortable it it made me better um but also being surrounded by all these women i don't there's not there's not been many opportunities in my career where i've been surrounded by a lot of women and i've been really lucky in the last two years because this project, the Obia Opera project, sort of welcomed me back from maternity leave. So it was a great way to talk to other women that are singers and dancers, you know, professional women in the arts that are also mothers. You know, how do you balance your life? How do you go out and seek success? How do you uh, drive yourself towards your goals, but still, you know, be home and present for your children? And uh, so that gave me a lot to work with. And it just really like strengthened me. So that was my welcome back from you know, my maternity leave. And my departure into maternity leave had been the Women in Blues review, Ooh. which again was the best of the best in Women in Blues in Canada. And a lot of them were mothers. So before I had Lucas, I had this kind of opportunity to get a lot of feedback from women that do what I love and have gone through this sort of milestone. So I think both of those experiences really bookended you know, these, this last year and a half yeah, and it's, it's made me better. So I'm really proud that I got a chance to be a part of women in blues review and Obia opera. So serendipitous, yeah. that strong female energy. The universe provides man. It does. <laughs> and actually it's a really great segue to question three, which mm -hmm. is how do you balance work and life? Ah. And so curious if you learned anything from those recent conversations that have inspired you or if you're doing your own thing? 
Oh, I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot from those conversations for sure. Uh, there's been lots of moments where I've replayed little things that some of the women have told me and you know it's given me the courage that i needed to move forward or the patience that i needed to kind of hold off and wait um but in turn now now that my life is so different from what it used to be this work-life balance question is has a very different answer because i've been forced to cultivate this skill regardless of my natural inclinations um before I was neurotically work obsessed, as I told you. And yeah. so I was out when I was working and when I wasn't working, I was hiding at home, kind of recuperating from the work that I had been doing. But I was also incredibly frustrated because I wasn't advancing at the pace that I thought I should be. And mm -hmm. why was this happening? I was burning the candle at both ends. I was doing all the projects. I was trying my best, but what was really lacking was the self-care option and you know, we're social beings. We need to go out and socialize and mm -hmm. be with our people and kind of have a tribe of people that empower you when you're working towards goals, you know? Mm. And and we need to eat and sleep and do those basic self-care things that sometimes when we're super busy, we tell ourselves are not important. That's what makes <laughs> Been there, us done successful that. <laughs> <laughs> and able to thrive. And thankfully, um, you know, I guess initially starting with uh, the little boy that I was caring for for a few years, he kind of forced me to do that. I, I mean, he needed to eat and sleep and do things. And so when he did those things, I did those things. Yep. You, we would eat together, you know, if, if he was having a nap, sometimes I would take a break. You know, obviously I wouldn't necessarily have a nap, but I would take a break. <laughs> and, uh, and then motherhood also, you know, circling back to that, like it forces me to do that. Now, when I have, you know, big shows that I'm nervous about, I can't just loop on them and overwork them and you know show up all wired and ready to go i have to be calm i have to you know regardless of whether the stage call is at seven you know my kids still got to eat lunch and he's still got to play and he's still got to be happy so mm -hmm. that's forced me to really prioritize things and keep things in perspective i love my work and it's kind of in a weird way um, having to compartmentalize it in my life has enabled me to be like a lot more eye of the tiger about my goals. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. That's great. Yeah, it seems like, it seems like you have this welcome outlet that allows you to not over-obsess about the process leading up to your execution and anytime I've seen you in action, you're absolutely slaying, right? So, but at the same time, we are our worst enemies when it comes to the lead up, myself included. Even when I'm prepping for a podcast, sometimes I'm in my head and things like that. Like it's very natural. Mm -hmm. So having that welcome, I don't want to say distraction, but that welcome outlet to mm -hmm. be able to just focus on something else and trust yourself. Know that you are going to execute because you have those skills. You are amazing. So right, right. very helpful. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> you're welcome. But you're, you're welcome. right. Trusting yourself. Yeah, like how do you build that trust in yourself? Right. Mm -hmm. I, I think that if you do the work, mm -hmm. like if you are very process oriented, you can mm -hmm. let go of that fear because mm -hmm. you have already listened to that song. You've learned those lyrics or you've written that album, you know, like, so you just go out and be yourself and do your job, you know, yeah. or be creative. It's but, so um, but yeah. 
Yeah, I, I dabbled in musical theater a little bit back in the day. And I've always had tremendous respect for singers who will go and they'll they'll headline a whole show and they know all the words to all these damn songs. I can barely do karaoke when it's in front of me and I'm reading the words. I feel like it's going too fast. So I have a lot of respect for <laughs> singers because i don't think it's a very easy task man i really don't <laughs> you know it is as hard as you make it i think in the end i yeah. mean some stuff is hard but we tend to get in our own ways a lot and yeah. i think i think it is important to remember when it comes to re- to trying to remember lyrics remember what the song is about like remember what the feeling is mm-hmm. because you are a storyteller just with melody so if you love those stories, like they're your own, you will internalize them. Ooh, I just got goosebumps. That was, <laughs> that was good. That was a good one. I like that. <laughs> oh, okay, moving forward. Question four is, can you tell us about a difficult moment in your life? Yes. I, I really respect what you're doing with this podcast. And mm-hmm. I, I think that... Um, if I want to participate in it honestly and genuinely, that the best thing I could do is give you a very truthful answer. So when you ask me if there was something difficult, a difficult time in my life, um, the thing that stands out in my mind the most, if I had looked back on all the years, I mean, there's been, we all have difficult times in our lives, but um, the thing that took the most from me occurred six years ago and it was um just after i had started really uh pursuing a professional life in music so six years ago i'm doing full-time school my band's really getting going and uh you know we're going all sorts of places we're we're really vested we're putting ourselves out there a lot and uh i got approached by a band uh no i got approached by a bar, Mm. by a manager at a bar um, who offered me a night uh, to do a residency with my band. And I was really excited because normally um, I would show up and I would sing and I would go to rehearsals and I would do all kinds of things, but I wasn't often, and, and not because I wanted to be, I was not often the person that was like leading bookings or negotiations and stuff like that. That part of the business was very new to me. Um, and so this was my chance, you know, this was my first real deal. And I had a big band. So securing a residency for a big band was like, I felt accomplished. Mm -hmm. So I started doing business dealings with this venue. We worked up a contract. Um, and so the contract gets signed in the summer, and it's meant to kick off in the fall. But by the time the fall kicks around, I have like a weird vibe, for lack of a better term. There'd be all these little things that would be happening that I would afterwards ruminate over and be like, you know, that didn't quite feel right. Mm-hmm. And But I don't know what it is about it. I can't quite put my finger on it. You know, my intuition was going crazy, yeah. but I was also working overtime talking myself down from it. Um, In my limited experience in the music industry, there was a lot of situations where I was dealing with men. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, being a young girl, uh, sometimes people forget themselves and they speak in ways that are inappropriate. And of course, if I wanted to be like, hey man, fuck you, <laughs> like every mm -hmm. time that happened and walk out of a room, there might've been lots of things that I wouldn't have done. There's been lots of moments where I had to really toughen my skin and be like, yeah, well, you know, sometimes people behave this way or yeah, you know, sometimes people cross this line. And how do you walk that fine line as a young, attractive woman that is in these situations without making somebody feel embarrassed for how they've crossed that line, but without compromising your boundaries mm -hmm. and without taking any shit. You yeah. know, how, how, how do you navigate that world? That's sort of like coming into womanhood for most girls, but yeah. in this, in, in an industry that is saturated with, you know, one gender over the other, you kind of have to learn those lessons on the fly fairly quickly. Preach. And I just want to be very clear. I know lots of great men. Mm -hmm. I know lots of great men in the industry. And for most of my life, the majority of my friends have been men. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, uh, interested in painting with a broad brush an entire gender at all mm -hmm. it just so happens that you know i met a few bad ones in my experiences in the music industry early on and instead of listening to that intuition i talked myself down a lot you know just because i'm uncomfortable doesn't mean that i'm going to blow up a deal that is literally going to keep my band of like nine people working every week for mm. four months, five months, six months, you know, like I, I have to, I have to handle it is what I would tell myself. Mm. So, and nothing really bad had super happened, you know, it'd be like a, a comment here or a joke there, but everything that had happened was sort of these soft whispers of red flags. Right. Right. But, um, so fast forward to September, my band is doing this residency. It's going well, but even they are starting to react to this weird vibe. I'm getting called into these business meetings all the time, quote unquote, business, business meetings, meetings. Mm. all the time. And when I'd get into the office, they would literally be th things that could have been texted to me or emailed to me, or it just didn't make sense. So at one point, even my, uh, my guitar player was like, do you want me to take over dealing with this manager so that you can focus on school and just show up and do the gig? Mm -hmm. And I was like, yes, please. Yeah. However, at the time, the manager had a very uh, strong reason why he didn't want to deal with anybody else. He hired the band because of me, you know, and I'm the person that he trusts and I'm the person that he made the contract with. So we keep going. And uh, one night he says to me, um, I have a proposition for you. How about you guys finish your contract working for free? Yeah, I know. What? <laughs> Wait, what now? <laughs> uh, but in January, we give you a better night and we continue this residency. And I, at the time when this is presented to me, I'm like, no, this deal sounds shitty. I don't yeah, want to do it. No <laughs> also, I'm not going to go to my band of eight other hardworking individuals and say, yeah. do you guys want to work for free? <laughs> because no. Mm. <laughs> and so I make it absolutely clear that that's not going to happen. And uh, that night, what ends up happening is um, he asked me to have a business meeting with him after work 
Mm-hmm. And I, I get on stage at nine o'clock. I finish at 11.30. So doing a business meeting at 11.30, I'm like not, one, mm. I'm not into it. Uh, two, I have class like at first thing the next day. And three, something feels weird about it. So yeah. I say, no, I'm sorry, I gotta go. I have class tomorrow. And this conversation, by the way, is happening in front of two of my bandmates. Mm. And uh, one of them had said, hey, do you want to ride home? I said, yeah, absolutely. And that's when my boss says, no, 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 I'm wondering if we can have this meeting. I say, you know what, I'm sorry, I have school, I can't do it. And, uh, and he says, well, you know, this is the problem with you. I am professional. I understand what is required to make things a success. I'm on call 24 seven when I need to be for my job. He's like, you are not, you're going to school. You're hard to reach. You know, there's, you're not fulfilling my expectations basically. Wow. And my being where I was in my career, which by the way, if it wasn't evident in what I had said, I was green. I was still very new and, um, I wanted to do well. So what he was saying was speaking to my insecurity. I'm not professional enough. I don't want to do well at this enough. So I say, okay, fine, let's have this business meeting. And he's like, I'm assuming that at best, what's gonna happen is he's going to apologize for this stupid business proposal that he made earlier Mm -hmm. and try and smooth things over. And I mean, that was the guise under which he got me into this situation. Ah, Irene, I just wanted to make things better. You know, I'm sorry about that conversation we had earlier. We had a really successful night tonight. Your band is doing great. You're so good at what you do. Blah, 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 blah. Have a shot with me. You know where this is going. Yeah. And that's the unfortunate part that you already even know where this is going. Mm -hmm. But I say, you know what? I don't even want the shot. Like, I just want to go home. Thanks for your kind words. Like, is this what the meeting was for? I just got to go. I, how can you reject my peace offering? He says, you know, I'm trying to smooth things over here and, (sighs) and you're just not participating. So (laughs) I take the stupid shot, Mm -hmm. you know, and about 20 minutes later, I'm not feeling very well. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, what do I want to say about this story? Because I don't really think telling you every horrible detail is going to serve anybody. But what I can tell you is that I had this opportunity to listen to my instinct. And because I was afraid about not meeting the objective of who I wanted to be professionally, because I was afraid of not being taken seriously, um, because I was afraid of letting down my band and not being the leader that they needed me to be. Um, you know, I talked myself out of listening to things that I should have listened to. And what happened was a very bad man took advantage of me, mm-hmm. you know, and this was a person that had been following me online for two years. So they knew things about me. They knew that I had done martial arts for 18 years. 
uh, they knew that I was an artist. And unbeknownst to me, they showed up at my first art gallery showing and they bought one of the works. But I wasn't there that night, I was at a gig. You know, but he had this piece of my work. He felt like he knew me. He had been following me online. He cracked my passwords for my Facebook, my Instagram, my email. Wow. Um, any password I had, he cracked it. And the way he demonstrated this to me was while I was on stage, he gave me a post-it note in mid-song. And I opened this post-it note and all of my passwords were written down. What? Yeah. I'd call the cops on this guy, jeez. I was terrified. <gasps> I was terrified, I was ashamed. I was so confused. Um, basically what happened was, uh, well, he drugged me. Mm -hmm. And once I realized that I had been drugged because I, I knew right away, like I hadn't, I, I don't drink very much. Right. When I drink, I drink a scotch. I nurse it. I, I enjoy every sip of it, but I'm not an overindulgent drinker. Mm -hmm. So I knew very much that I had not had enough alcohol to feel the way that I was feeling. Mm -hmm. And once it dawned on me that this was a plan that was unfolding, mm -hmm. I knew that I had to make my exit there immediately. Mm -hmm. So, what had happened was I'd gone to the bathroom and I was like, I'm not feeling right. What's going on? I need to leave. And I heard the bathroom door open. Oh no. And he calls my name and I come out of the stall and I'm, I'll put, I'm put together and I brush right past him and I say, I'm fine. Cause he's like, are you okay? I just wanted to come in here and check on you. And you're like, yeah, creep. Get the fuck away from <laughs> me. In the ladies bathroom. Yeah. Super weird. Yeah. Geez. So I'm like, no, no, I'm fine, but I need to go home. It's late. We've already had our meeting. So I'm just going to go. He's like, oh no, no, I'm going to drive you. Don't worry. Uh, and nope. I, I mean, that had been the plan. He had told my bandmate, don't worry. I'm going to drive her home after this meeting. And so I, even in that moment, didn't know how to exit out of mm -hmm. that scenario. I was so concerned with being rude and with not behaving the way I should, mm -hmm. that I wasn't minding or I wasn't watchful to what was happening on the other side, how this person was behaving, how they were letting me know that their intentions were not honorable mm -hmm. and that they were not a good person. So long story short, we exit the club and as I'm exiting the club, I realize that I'm not walking in a straight line. Oh no. And we get in the car and I'm confused as to why this person is putting on my seatbelt, like why they're buckling my seatbelt for me. And I, I'm disoriented, but I'm also still present enough to know that something's not right. And I say to him, are you okay to drive? And I really regret that one sentence years later so, so much. Uh, because he uses that opportunity to say, no, actually, I need a minute. Do you mind if we go back in? And I was like, uh, okay. And I'm about to say, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to grab a cab. But at this point, he's gotten out of the car and he's opened my door. And so I'm like, why is he helping me if he needs a minute? I don't understand what's happening. But I'm also trying to play it cool because I'm really physically beginning to feel very unwell. Yeah. And I want to mask 
that I'm not feeling a hundred percent. Right. So I'm trying to, you know, just be this, whatever, uh, something's wrong, but I know what it is. It's fine. Nothing. And, um, and the next thing I know, he scooped me up and he says, you're just drunk. It's okay. I'm just going to take you inside for a minute. And so we go inside and I don't actually have much recollection of how we get inside because, um, when he has to uh, unlock the code, like disarm the alarm, he flips me onto his shoulder. Ugh. And when his shoulder digs into my solar plexus, I vomit a little bit. Right. And unfortunately, when somebody has drugged you with, I don't actually know specifically what it was, like but when somebody, I something. think it's Rohypnol or something yeah. like that, because yeah. the symptoms seem to be the same from what right. I've read. But once that initial puke happens, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term, that is the beginning of the countdown to when you start losing the ability to control your limbs. <sighs> and I knew that. Fuck. So as soon as I had vomited, I knew that I had a window of time before I blacked out or was not able to move. Right. So what ended up happening is he carried me back into the club and I was trying to run through everything I psychologically knew about this person. How do I communicate to them that what they're doing is wrong? And I didn't know what to say except, and it's the weirdest thing, I don't know why this came to me then, but I remembered that on the few isolated occasions that he had driven me home after a business meeting, we would drive past a church and he would cross himself. And we're both Peruvian. And back home, um, the mainstream vibe is Catholicism in Mm -hmm. terms of religious culture. And so, you know, it's not uncommon to see people crossing themselves or most people go to Catholic school and, you know, it's like, it's kind of there. It's part of the culture. So, so we, so I saw, I saw that in him and I, I knew that perhaps at some facet of his being, he believed in God. But I couldn't speak very well anymore and I couldn't move my arms. And what I said to him was, you need to stop what you're doing. Your ghosts are watching you. And he was like, what? And he kind of stopped for a minute. And I repeated, I don't even know how I repeated what I said. But then I blacked out. (sighs) And so, and then when I came to, we were in the car and he was apologizing to me. I'm so sorry about what happened. I'm so sorry. And I was really scared because um, I knew what had happened. Physically, I knew what had happened. But on another level, I knew that this person was dangerous. And um, that this club had a criminal element to it. Mm -hmm. Um, And... I had seen them threaten people before or behave in ways that I was like, oh, it's a little bit shady here. Mm -hmm. And I, from the get-go, when I took this contract, I had sort of been told that this club had a bad reputation back in the day. And they were reaching out to somebody like me because they wanted me to help them reinvent themselves, to clean up their image, to have a, a more wholesome vibe that's focused on the music versus 
um, the, the notorious reputation dealings, and yeah. yes, the backroom dealings, the underground drugs, the late night parties. So they were trying to move away from that. And, and they I really like, messed sure. that up. <laughs> yeah, they really did. And so, so I knew that I was not really out of the woods yet. Mm-hmm. And so when this person is apologizing to me, I'm pretending that I don't know what's going on. What are you talking about? I don't know what happened. I just know you had too much to drink. I had too much to drink. Thanks for driving me home. And then we get to my building. But the thing is that the drugs haven't worn off and I can't move my limbs. Still. Mm -mm. So this person who just did this to me has to drag me to my front door of my building. And once I'm in the front door of my building, I'm like, I need him to, I, I need to be away from him. I, yeah. I don't want him coming upstairs to my apartment and doing this to me again. So he no. needs to be gone. Right. So I start making a lot of noise. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks so much for drive. Please go. Like, you know, I just like, I'm just making noise and I'm like maybe acting a little bit crazy. And yeah. so he bolts, he's gone. Yeah. yeah. And then I have to physically drag myself up four floors and open my door. Wow. No one saw you. No, it was like like early in the morning. Early hours of dawn. Okay. Um and uh and my my boyfriend at the time got woken up because of the commotion. And he came out of the bedroom and he found me on the floor apparently scratching at the floorboards, <gasps> screaming and crying. <sighs> and then when he looked at me, he could see that my clothes were really disheveled and that they had not really been put back the way that they had been. Right. So what ends up happening next is probably way harder than that night because of what I did to myself, you know, because of all the shame I put on myself, because Instead of understanding that this was not my fault because, uh, because of my ego, my ego was wounded. You know, I trained 18 years in martial arts to not be this statistic. And this person knew that. So if they were going to do something like this to me, they needed to drug me. They couldn't physically overpower me because I would literally fight for my life. Mm-hmm. So to be reduced in that moment to that victim was literally everything I hated and had fought against being. And so I was like, I'm not that person. That didn't happen. Mm -hmm. It didn't happen. I showed up the next day to my other gig, like it didn't happen. Mm. You know, I pretended as best I could, like it didn't happen until I was literally falling apart and that took about a month (laughs) that took about a month together for a whole month well not really i was a zombie but but to the outside world i would show up to my concert i would do my job i would Mm -hmm. feel validated because i was doing my job i was distracted from this horrible thing that was being looped over and over and over and over again in my mind these splices of moments that i could remember between being blacked out and being awake you know, mm-hmm. and, um, I just, I, I couldn't connect and it was actually, 
it was weird because it was making me be this person professionally that I didn't want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I think art is about honesty and you can't really have good art if it doesn't have honest substance behind it. And I wasn't bringing that honesty. What I was bringing was pieces of myself fragmented mm-hmm. in this weird Frankenstein uh, persona to fulfill what I thought I needed to be on stage, but I was broken. Mm-hmm. I was so broken. I, I, I was empty and I just wanted to escape. So it took me about a month before I went to the police, but then I went to the police and good, oh, just FYI, after the night after that happened, I did go to the hospital. I good. did get a test, you know, I, I did those things, but it, I did them too late. So when somebody's drugged you, the evidence of that being in your system is generally almost always gone with your first pee. Really? For for some drugs, not for all drugs, but for like most commonly associated date rape drugs. Yeah, that that evidence goes fast. So it's it's really important for for somebody that has survived something like this to go immediately to the hospital. Is it only in your urine or is it also in your blood? Um, Both. I mean, they do a urine test, they do a blood test. And it really depends on the drug with how it's going to manifest. I can't say that I know what I took. I can tell you with full certainty (laughs) that I was drugged. Oh, yeah. And that unfortunately the evidence was gone. So once I knew that the evidence was gone, I I felt even more disempowered. Like there, there was this, maybe this flicker that was like, she's going to go, I'm going to go to the hospital. I'm going to get this test. I'm going to have proof. And then I'm going to go to the police. Mm-hmm. I don't have that. Also the next day, this guy, the, my boss called me to. Uh, don't like, say business meeting. <laughs> to Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> exactly. To talk business wow. as if nothing had happened. And to pry to see if I had something I wanted to say to him. No, yeah, no, okay, we're good, yeah. And and then following that, to just give me a lot of pressure. You know what? What, what he did was he booked at the end of my contract, he mm-hmm. booked a major night for my band and I to do something that I wasn't even ready to do. It was a Billy Holiday tribute night. And to be honest, as I told you, I was still green. So Mm. never in my life would I have dreamt that in my like second or third year of singing that I would sign up to do a Billie Holiday tribute night because she's freaking Billie Holiday. Right. You know, I get it. I get it. You know, and, and he tells me I have called all of these radio stations, all of these TV stations, all of these people are coming for this gig. It's going to be the end of your contract and then you can be done if you want, but don't you embarrass me. Wow. You know what I mean? So I was so fucked up. Like I was just, I was confused about what I could do in that situation and what I deserved to do and what I owed to my band and what I owed to whatever people's expectations. I was just confused. And I think that's like a really normal state to be in after something like that has happened and you have to be able to forgive yourself and to listen to yourself in order to get through it but I couldn't I couldn't listen to myself and I couldn't forgive myself Mm -hmm. so I just drove myself insane for a month and then when I went to the cops and I told them what happened they were like this is insane we absolutely believe you were going to arrest him immediately and he was arrested 
And then for the next four and a half years of my life, we went to court. So every time things were getting good again, we'd go back into court and we'd go back to replaying all replaying it all, Mm -hmm. you know? And so what I did in order to maintain my sanity was I took every single tour I possibly could. And I just put as much distance between me and this city as possible. Mm -hmm. And because I just didn't want to be reminded. I didn't want to be reminded every time I walked in that neighborhood or every time I saw a poster or a flyer or just, you know, it was just always there. And talking to strangers who didn't know anything about me or didn't know what I was meant to be like, you know, in different cities, that was sort of liberating. Mm -hmm. I could just reinvent myself as a person that was not running away from this. And so that's what I did. And four years later, um, you know, the verdict, like in many of these cases, was not what I wanted because many of these cases turn into what people call a he said, she said situation. Great. I've since sort of reframed what I think about these he said, she said cases. The only way you can prove something happened is by doing the proper investigation when a crime has been committed. So you know, yes, that means that the victim has some responsibility, but that also means the police force has the lead amount of responsibility in that regard. So nobody asked me for my clothes. Nobody subpoenaed the uh, security video footage that would have proven that this person brought me back into the club at the time that I said had to carry me. None of these things were asked for. And I know that sometimes there's these legal loopholes about how somebody doesn't need to provide incriminating evidence. But I just felt like in retrospect, so many steps were missed, you know, that the case wasn't, um, and you know what, it's kind of hard to say that in a, in a certain level because the police officers that I, were, that I was dealing with during that time were mm-hmm. extremely sensitive to me. Um, and they helped me, you know, provide letters to my school because I was in too much shock to keep going to school. And, you know, they helped me by showing up at every court date and by encouraging me by, you know, by telling me that this was worth it and how important it was that I was doing this. So, so in a lot of ways they were really there for me. So I'm not trying to single anybody out. It's true. And that's more than what a lot of survivors have dealt with. Absolutely. You know, bare minimum. But to your point, it seems like there's a massive amount of systemic protocol. Yes. That's missing. Yes. Because this, I mean, this is unfortunately something that happens too often. All the time. And there should be something in place. Yeah. Like that. That would make a lot of sense. I mean, everything you just said, even though those couple of suggestions, it seems like a no brainer. Yeah. But I mean, it's complicated. It's an overtax system. It's, you know, by which I mean, like there's a a big demand Mm -hmm. for support and there's not a lot of resources, you know? So I didn't know what to do with this thing that had happened. I didn't know how to navigate myself as a person, as a professional. Um, 
And, uh, and what ended up happening in a way for me to cope was I created some changes to my business. So that helped me create a buffer to keep myself feeling safe. Right. Um, but I also, ch- the, 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 the dynamic in my band changed. Um, I had to tell them what happened. Yeah. You know, and that very quickly showed me who was not just a bandmate, but who was a friend. You know, my brothers in music came with me to those court dates. They testified. They did anything that they could do to give the police information that could back up what I was saying, what they had observed, what they felt uncomfortable with. Mm-hmm. You know, and and we made rules. From now on, when we're at gigs, you know, buddy system. Yep. Doesn't matter if you're a girl or a boy. And honestly, there have been moments where we've been on the road that I was really glad some of the boys had a buddy with them because mm-hmm. there's weird people everywhere. It's not yeah. gender exclusive. So, so yeah. So, you know, we made some rules. Um, I got a manager and uh, just having that buffer mm-hmm. made people deal with me differently. Um, there was already just, uh, I don't, I don't want to say respect, but it was almost kind of like that. It was almost like, yes, I'm hungry to, to work. And yes, I love what I do, mm-hmm. but I've also worked really hard at it. And you don't get me right away with a phone call. Right. You know, not every gig is for me, unfortunately. And I can't take it all on. So there's certain things that I like to do. There's certain things that I make time for. And, um, but, but having, having somebody be that buffer ended up helping me keep myself safe a lot mm-hmm. and making myself feel safer, I guess, is a better way of putting it. Wow. Mm. That is one story. Jeez, girl. I am yeah. so sorry. No, you it's had to okay. go through that. And I'm so grateful that you were brave enough to share that in this forum because all of the incredible women who are listening to this podcast, they're unfortunately going to be faced with lots of situations where that intuition is going to flag. Or they're going to be pressured into doing something, staying for one last drink, meeting someone at a time when they typically wouldn't doing these things Mm -hmm. because we're trying to be polite or Mm -hmm. we're trying to forward a career or something like that. Just something we are trying to see the best in someone, Mm -hmm. trying to see the best in a situation when that individual or institution or whatever it is has the wrong ideas and the wrong intent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I really hope this is going to be a very strong reminder and a strong call to action to when you are in a situation, when you feel that something isn't right, have the agency to say something, have the agency to say no, even if there is a potential risk of that job or that gig or that situation hurting that passion, that career, it's not worth your life. It's not worth your Mm -hmm, health. mm -hmm. And that's so easy to say when you're not in it. <laughs> sure. And it's, it's difficult to recognize when yeah. it's happening in front of you too. Right? right. I mean, it just, it just is like you have to, I think the people that are really good at setting boundaries are people that have a, a very good sense of self-worth. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and they understand what their time means and they understand what they deserve. And I think if in life you've experienced things that have sort of frag fractured that understanding of self, that you mm -hmm. are worthy, that, that you deserve to have boundaries and that when people reach those boundaries and start freaking out, it's because you've reached the limitation of their respect. Mm -hmm. You know, like those, those things are just part of life. But, but when you are not able to uh, live a wholehearted life or, you know, I don't know, I don't know what I'm trying to say here. Maybe when you've already had to deal with a lot of stuff, sometimes yep. you just get used to quieting those instinctive kind of messages, you know, th those intuitions. You're like, nope, that's just my past stuff. I got to put that over there. And this is not what's happening now. But sometimes shitty stuff happens again, mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes the shitty stuff that happens doesn't define you, but it tests you. Absolutely. You said that perfectly. It does <sighs> not define you. It doesn't. And it's an opportunity for growth and realization. It's one of the reasons why I love failure. It sucks to go through, but mm -hmm. that's when you have the opportunity to grow so much as a human being. Absolutely. Um, it's not the same same thing in this particular context. but No, but valuing your mistakes is such a key part of life, I think. I absolutely agree. Wow. I'm so glad you shared that story, and, and thank you for doing that. Um, you are such a treasure, Irene, you are amazing. You're such a wonderful, incredible human being and such a strong, badass bitch. I mean, I knew that before hearing this story, but no one deserves to go through that type of thing. No, no, absolutely not. You know, I, I think like I talked myself out of sharing this story in many other moments that I could have, you know, where there was a forum of women and music in the industry or like what key moments that were like, this is your chance to talk about. And I was like, no, 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 no. I don't want to do that because I don't want to be the victim. I don't want to be another me too story. I don't want to, you know what I mean? But what does it serve me to keep it hidden? Like this secret that I, I didn't, I didn't do anything. This is a shitty thing that happened to me. It mm -hmm. could happen to anybody. You know, it doesn't matter if you train martial arts for 18 years. It doesn't matter if you know how to shoot a gun. It doesn't matter if you always carry your keys in your hands. Sometimes things go wrong mm -hmm. and you have to be able to find yourself after those things have occurred. And if me telling you this story or if somebody else hearing this story you know, just even has a sense of comfort, like, man, I'm so sorry that happened to you, but it happened to me too, mm -hmm. you know, or, Hey, that time I was having a bad vibe. Like that's what could have really happened. Like, like whatever it is that it's, it's, if it serves you in any way, I am so grateful that my shitty experience was able to help you yeah. in the, you in the general sense. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And ultimately you didn't do anything wrong. This was clearly a person who was very in a calculated way, oh, yeah. hell bent on causing some form of trauma to you and acting out 
on you because you had already started to resist those ideas. So Yeah. Oh, and by the way, this was not an isolated case. As mm-hmm. I learned with the police proceedings, there was two or three other situations with other women mm-hmm. that had sort of had similar situations, not exactly the same, but similar situations. Mm-hmm. And also part of what happened was that I felt like I had to go to court. I had to make a statement. I had to do something to get this knowledge out there because this person was very good at what they were doing and was just going to be emboldened by what had happened with me. And yep. they, without a doubt, have gone out there and done something like this since yep. or will. Yep. You know, so... And when I heard that there was other women that had experienced things, I was like, well, somebody's got to say something. And mm-hmm. I thought... I thought that they would join me <laughs> in this legal proceeding, you know, that we would, the sisterhood would band together and we right. would like take them down. Yeah. But it also forced me to learn that, you know, different people are in different stages of right. dealing with their pain and recognizing it. And they can't always be there. Not not everybody can go deal with the draining stress and judgment and constant replay of this horrible situation and having it draw out for four years only to have a conclusion that you feel was unfair. Like, you know, all of mm-hmm. these things, yeah. it doesn't necessarily make you feel like it was worth it in the end, but it, it is, I think it is worth it. This guy didn't go to jail, unfortunately, but the judge believed me and the judge said that he believed me and he took a lot of time to express that so that if this happens again, with this person mm-hmm. and the police type in his name. It's going to come up. It's going to come up. That is a very powerful step that you took. It, it, is that guy still running this particular venue or is that has that kind of washed away? I am so happy to tell you that that venue has been reduced to rubble. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. It is no Good. longer standing. Good. And it was weird because like years later, I got an email from a singer from the States Mm -hmm. and she said that she was coming to Toronto to do some dates. And would I be interested in uh, sharing a night with her at this club? Mm -hmm. And I felt like I had to tell her, I was like, look, I didn't know what to do. (laughs) It's one of those moments. I hadn't really spoken about this with anybody. But in that moment, I was like, I need to warn her. You, you, you should yeah, not go there, go there mm-hmm. you know, or go there at your own risk. But like, you should know these things can happen. And that was a nervous, like nerve wracking thing for me to do because um, sometimes that's not received well. You know, in this particular case, this singer from the U.S. was like, thank you so much for telling me that. I really appreciate that. But in another instance, when I reached out actually to a burlesque dancer Mm -hmm. that was going to share a night with me there, and I said, I'm not doing the night anymore. uh, And I just want to let you know, like, I see that you have some future bookings there. Mm -hmm. I just want to let you know this really horrible thing happened without going into the details. But this, these are some of the people that are involved with running this place. And you might not want to put yourself at risk. Right. She did not take it very well. You know, she felt like whatever happened with me was an isolated thing. Wow. And she talked to the manager and the manager made me sound like a crazy lady and she rolled the dice and I hope that she was okay. Yeah. You know, but I couldn't take that on. I couldn't take the fact that she no, didn't want on to your receive conscience. that knowledge. Like I, mean, I couldn't take it on. It was just, it's, 
I, I told her. You just transferred information. You can't control what they do with that information. Exactly. But, I mean, again, you're you're the kind of person with the level of integrity integrity that you couldn't in good conscience withhold that information to someone whom you know, a fellow artist who was potentially going to be put in a similar situation. Yeah. Yeah. And and that just speaks to the amazing things that you put out there and that you do. And I have nothing but love for you, Irene. You're oh, I love you too. That's Thank true. you. And um, one last question just to, to wrap sure. up on on this piece before we move on. Mm-hmm. Um, can you share some of the things that you did to help find yourself after this traumatic experience? You mentioned, hey, I booked a lot of tour dates oh, to be able to question. do that. But I'm sure there were some other things, either short-term, mid-term, long-term, yeah. Um, so there were some healthy things that I did and there were some unhealthy things that I did. Sure. So, and there was some things I couldn't control either. Um, so I have PTSD. I have, uh, what is the official diagnosis? Complex delayed onset post-traumatic stress disorder. It's a mouthful. Yeah. And what happens is that basically when you're exposed to trauma for an extended period of time, your brain shifts how it works, right? It rewires itself to be like super good at dealing with stress. Mm. But in order to be super good at dealing with stress, um, you cut down on other processes. So I would have these really like intense flashbacks sometimes. I would break out into hives. Um, A couple of times I went into literally anaphylactic shock that was induced by stressing. And so like my throat was closed at the hospital and they were like, oh, you have PTSD? Oh, that happens sometimes. Wow. Which I had no idea. Neither did I. So, I mean, yes, I had booked a lot of tours and yes, I was going on the road and and running away from the city that had this reminder to me, but I was also, I couldn't escape my body. So, uh, you know, while we were participating in the International Blues Challenge in Memphis, my throat had semi-closed and I had like what looked like a fist of muscle that the entire left side of my tongue had seized in my mouth. Whoa. And so I'm trying to sing and eat and like do all these things and I can't do it. I didn't know what to do. So, uh... One thing was that I realized self-care needed to happen and I couldn't do self-care if I wasn't honest with myself. Mm-hmm. So when my body is literally like trying to be like, oh, bitch, you think you're cool? Like you do not have this under control. <laughs> FYI, we're shutting it down. <laughs> you know, like body has a great way of doing that. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't play around. So I, I was literally forced to face my own limitations and kick into self-care mode. Mm-hmm. So I would do things like, um, I wouldn't go out sometimes, you know, I would allow myself the space to heal Mm -hmm. and be on my own. Uh, I would write, I wrote a lot. I wrote some songs on, uh, the, in the details album that really helped me survive this. There's a song called Lake of Fire on that album that nobody i don't i think they would be terrified if they knew what it was really about Mm -hmm. um but but it's it's literally the story of what happened to me with this manager at this club 
and what it did to my spirit and what it made me want to do to him. <laughs> you know, and based on the title alone, I can, I can start to get a, a gist. <laughs> I have a, like an active imagination and you know, I really felt like I wanted to punish this person mm-hmm. and I, I couldn't, you know, I, we don't live in a society where you can go out and gut somebody like a fish because they did this to you. That's a quick trip to jail. Right. Even so, if they deserve it. <laughs> right. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. So I had to find a place to channel these dark feelings and music literally was my salvation. Um, so I wrote about it and, um, and now I think I'm at the point where I'm ready to start unpacking it in like a therapeutic sense. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I plan to do because I'm still sort of dealing with it. But in terms of what I did with it up until this point, I did a lot of writing. I did a lot of time alone. And eventually what ended up helping me get over the last few corners was these incredible experiences with these women, you know, with the Women in Blues Review, with Obia Opera. You will meet so many women that have survived so much and worse. Yep. You know, and to hear their stories about how they survive, how they've reinvented themselves, how they've channeled, you know, these horrible things to become strengths, like it, it helps you. It makes you feel like you're kind of in good company. Yeah. It makes you feel like it's possible. Um, and now ultimately what I'm doing for it is, is I'm talking about it. I'm yep. not afraid to talk to you about it today. And that's probably the most that I've done with it in years. I'm so glad to hear that. You are a shining star. You really are. I'm looking at you. I'm like, wow, this girl is such clarity, such honesty, such authenticity. And I'm moved. Ah, let's drink. Yes. Yes. Cheers. (laughs) Cheers to this. And, And you're raising a future generation of men oh yes my man son will be a friend now. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yep good for you oh man okay well let your question yes next question <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna add a little bit of levity here mm-hmm. so question five is who or what inspires you the most uh my mom <laughs> like maybe that's here? a nerdy answer uh she's my mom and i came to canada Uh, when she was 25 and I was five and man, I just like, I'm in such awe of her. Like, I want to tell you why I deeply respect her. And I know that my answer is going to make her uncomfortable. So I'm just going to pretend that she's not going to hear this. Sorry, mom. Sorry, mom. (laughs) But my mom literally left everything she knew, uh, in Lima, Peru to come to Toronto and we left in a complicated circumstance. Uh, we came as refugees and there was a lot of stuff going on back home that I won't delve into. But mm-hmm. I mean, if you're interested in history and politics, like check out Peruvian political history, it's an eye opener. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we couldn't make it look like we were fleeing. So we, went on a trip. (laughs) So we went to visit uh, my uncle 
in France and we went to visit some friends of the family in Spain and we spent some time in Europe before we came to Toronto. And the plan was that we were going to travel through Toronto to the States oh. and meet my stepfather in Boston where he had sort of been setting up a life for us. So he left before us. We went on this trip. The plan is we converge in Boston, but unfortunately they denied us passage. So oh. we kind of got stuck in Toronto. Wow. But I'm like so, so grateful that Toronto became home. Especially now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Especially now for sure. But also because Toronto is this awesome multicultural mosaic with so much life and vibrancy and growing up in Toronto I got such a sense of different life experiences that I don't really think I would have had growing up in other places I mean I'm sure I would have had different experiences or maybe just as good ones but I'm very grateful for the fact that Toronto is home and so when my mom came here even though she was a university graduate she literally had to start from scratch we had like two suitcases She got a job at the Samco toy factory. We slept on a woman's floor for months until we can afford our own place. Uh, Then we got an apartment. Uh, My mom literally rebuilt her life from scratch. She went back to high school. She went back to college. She went back to university. While managing to raise two kids, my brother was born here. and uh, be a mom, work her butt off and go to school. You know, she just juggled all these things. And now that I'm like in my thirties and I have a baby and there are moments where I'm like, I just can't, I just don't know how I'm gonna. And I'm like, (laughs) dude, your mom like pulled this shit together. Like nobody's business. when she was 10 years younger. So, (laughs) you know, you can do it, but, uh, no, she's just such a light in my life. She's, uh, she's a rock and she's got such integrity. And I, I really respect her for that. Mm -hmm. She knows who she is and she's taught us to really, um, build ourselves out of important blocks, you know, like, it was really important in my house to be able to debate things, Mm -hmm. to have conversations, to be able to express your opinion, have a disagreement and do it in such a way that, you know, you as a team, as a family are learning and evolving. And I'm so glad because that served me well in my adult life for sure. I feel like that's a very rare thing in a lot of families. Usually it's, it's, superficial small talk and you know you have to kind of respect your your mother father figures and right. and and kind of go with the flow that's that's i think that's unique from Maybe what i hear that's heard. a cultural thing because like i when coming to canada like i learned that certain things are like faux pas you know you do not talk about money you do not talk about religion you do not talk about politics you have like this extensive list of shit you do not talk about it's called repression right (laughs) but back home you need to be able to talk about politics otherwise you don't know things like and that's embarrassing you need to be able to know where you come from you need to like these are the markers of what a complete person are is (laughs) yeah um so so my parents and my mom especially she was very 
keen on raising independently minded children. Hmm. You know, so that later bit her in the ass when like, you know, we were <laughs> super good at debating what it is that we wanted to do that sort of went, went against the grain of what she wanted to do in terms of parenting. Right. Like when, uh, okay, so we're all about knowledge. Oh yeah, everybody read books and la 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 at home. <laughs> so I decided at 12 years old that what I really wanted to do was read the Satanic Bible. <laughs> sure that catholic upbringing love yeah. that <laughs> well my mom was really good about that because also when that didn't work to shock her i rebelled by join, joining a baptist uh youth group at a church oh wow so you know i went full extremes but still <laughs> she was like i don't want you to read this book and i'm like but it's a book <laughs> how are you not going to want me to read a book? Aww. So we launched into these debates about whether or not this was a valid book for me to read. Right. And because knowledge is knowledge and you should read all things, you know, even if they're wrong, you should know how they're wrong, why they're wrong. Right. right? Or if they're right, why they're right. Mm. So I won the debate, but then what ended up happening is every time I'd bring a copy back home, it would mysteriously disappear. Ah. <laughs> So was she reading it or, or she, she didn't would get read rid of it. it? She would get rid of oh it. My gosh. I mean, I'm, oh. she might have read it. I, she could definitely have read it. She might surprise me still for sure. But <laughs> but she was like, I don't really know if this book that talks about, you know, ideological selfishness is really like what you need to be filling your mind with. But I was like, Satanism, it's crazy. Let's talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why not? I mean, when you're, especially when you're a teenager and stuff. You know. Oh yeah. I was a goth girl for like 15 <laughs> years. My poor parents. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, that's amazing. It seems like ferocity and resilience comes through yes. your family. Yeah. My mom is the epitome of that for sure. I'm so, so grateful to have her in my corner amazing cool all right well let's move on to question six which is what is the most adventurous thing you have ever done okay what is an appropriate answer mm. <laughs> there's there's again no there's no such thing as a wrong answer on reveal no criminal acts no i'm just uh, kidding um <laughs> yeah i mean like, yeah <laughs> if you did reap revenge on <laughs> no 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 i'm kidding um, most adventurous thing. Okay. So during that time that I was trying to put distance between myself and Toronto, right. My brother in music, Joshua Pichet and I, he's a great guy. I love him he's so a much. Great guy. <laughs> so, um, the drummer in our band was living in new Orleans he had relocated there with his girlfriend at the time. And we were halfway through recording our, our EP. So we decided uh, we were going to hitch a ride with our friends in a metal band, a speed metal band, FYI. <laughs> and we were going to ride 27 hours to New Orleans to meet our drummer there wow. and finish recording the EP. So I had like envisioned all these magical ways in which I would drive into New Orleans. The right soundtrack, you know, <laughs> the smell in the air. <laughs> The night sky, all, yeah, yeah. the whole thing, you know. But what ended up happening is like we drove in in like a metal ashtray listening to like speed metal ah. for like 26 hours. <laughs> oh no. So they, they didn't let you I mean, they didn't like, switch up the There was soundtrack. a couple moments of reprieve, but what was literally 
on the current soundtrack while we were driving in was like a band that whose name I can't pronounce. And I'm sorry, I'm just not big in, I, I like metal, but I'm not knowledgeable in the right. genre. But that being said, so we drive into New Orleans, middle of the night and um, everybody's sleeping at that point. So we're all trying to find places to sleep, but I'm all wired. I like, well, I want to go out, explore the city. So we find this pub and, and we are all having drinks. Um, and I met a pool shark <laughs> okay, <laughs> who taught me how to play pool. <laughs> but so that was kind of an adventure. And we ended up spending like two months in New Orleans wow. and we were not necessarily, uh, budget prepared. <laughs> so what we would do is Josh and I would literally busk for our supper and, so we'd go to the French Quarter, we'd play music, and people were like very, what I love about New Orleans is that the music scene there, like, it's not a scene, the music culture there, it is like, it is alive, it is mm -hmm. thriving. It's you magic. Can, it is literally magic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, everything from hearing a gospel service in the Ninth Ward to hearing John Cleary play at the Maple Leaf Bar, you know, like it all just feeds you. It feeds you. And you're so thankful to be there and to be mm -hmm. learning and the birthplace of jazz and to be listening to soul and funk. And it's nonstop. It's always there. It's always, there's always music playing somewhere. Right. Right. So. So Josh and I would busk during the day and then at night we would go out and we would see our heroes play at these little bars. And that experience was so much fun. It was so crazy. And I mean, like, I just can't, I can't, like my adult mind is now like, would you really do like a two month trip in a different city on like a $10 a day per diem? No, I'm like, no. Like that, <laughs> like, that is like the true no. musician life. Like, it's yeah. like you're literally playing for your food and, and then seeing music all night. Like that's, yes, that's, that's an image. It, it, it <laughs> was a picture for sure. I mean, I think that that fed us as artists. I think it, it developed us as bandmates, mm -hmm. you know, it made us closer friends. Um, so that was our first trip to New Orleans and we've been back there several times since, but, and you know, in and around the U S still, but, but that, that time definitely stands out in my mind because we were so open to adventure. We were just like, whatever happens, happens, man. <laughs> like, That's what a great way to think about that. Mm -hmm. I'd be terrified. I'd be like, where are we staying? How are we doing this? What are oh, we doing? Yeah. Oh my God. There, we, yeah. Well, we had this day where we were staying part, part, like secured. Oh, that's good. But okay. there were definitely moments on other tours where like we rolled the dice on a couple of things and we ended up sleeping in the van like for <laughs> a few nights, you know? One girl, six guys sleeping uh, in the van, super stinky and in a parking lot. But uh, you know, just kind of like, those are the times that you look back at now, you know, living in Hillcrest, Toronto with your baby and you're like, remember those days? Yeah, you're <laughs> like, ah, oh, I live a pretty privileged life in comparison. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so let's move on to question seven, mm. which is what do you attribute your success to? <laughs> it's like such, it sounds so like Ponzi. Like, oh, my, I attribute my success to, no. <laughs> <laughs> You are I, here for a reason. I'm flattered that you think I'm <laughs> successful. No, yeah. I'm uh, yeah. <laughs> um, well, 
I, I, as I told you, I really value process. So when I think about success, I think about reaching a goal. And when I get to look back at all the steps that I took to reach that goal, that's what gives me the best form of validation. Uh, Cause you know, like, especially if you work in show business, there's gonna be so many people that are like, oh, you're so great, oh, you're amazing, you know? And those, that, those things feel so good. Mm-hmm. They, feel, uh, they feel wonderful. Mm-hmm. You're high off of being on stage and like doing what you love and having sung and then everybody comes and they give you love and you're like, ah, oh, give me this love, yes. <laughs> it's like a warm blanket. <laughs> it is like a warm blanket, but then you go home, mm-hmm. you know? Or then after like a month of doing a show every single day, the show's over. Mm-hmm. And there's no audience and there's no uh, partners in the project where you can all feed off each other's accomplishments. There's no, there's nowhere outside of you to get this sense of validation. Mm-hmm. The real sense of accomplishment is like when I look inside and I'm like, I know how much I struggled to do this. Mm-hmm. Like I know how when I first took this gig that I wasn't quite ready for, I would come home to the hotel every night and I would cry. Nobody else knows, Mm -hmm. but I would cry and I would know it's because, you know, I'm stressed out about not being a harmony singer because I'm not used to being on this big stage or like, do I have something really worth saying? Like all those self doubts. Right. Mm -hmm. But when I look back at the end of that month of doing that show or the end of those two months of that run, and I'm like, wow, I'm not crying every night anymore. You know, or I really worked on those harmonies. Like I sat down with my keyboard every day and played those six fucking notes or those eight notes every day. Mm-hmm. Like you do the work. Um, I think that's what makes you successful. You're aware that bringing it back to the advice of the teen self, that mm-hmm. whatever it is that you've decided to take on or work towards, it's going to be challenging. And you're going to be tested, whether life tests you or you test yourself or somebody else tests you, like it's just what's going to happen. So if you can be confident in the fact that you're committed to the goal on a shitty day or a good day, then you reach it. Also support. Mm. Um, The process is great, but I have like three really three or four really close friends that when I'm excited about an idea or a project, those are the people that I call to talk it out with first, mm-hmm. you know, and talking about it gets me excited about doing it. And then talking about the problems I encountered in the process of doing it, how, like having somebody to bounce off those ideas mm-hmm. is really, really helpful. Um, having a team for lack of a better term that supports you is, is sort of crucial in a lot of ways. It's, you can't be a solitary success. Mm-hmm. I don't really know who's good at doing that. Anybody out there that has like really manifested their ability, reached their potential, like they've not done it alone. Mm-hmm. I have an amazing family that supports me in what I wanna do. And I have an amazing partner. And so, us now as this extended, as this bigger family now that we have our own child, it's it's really what feeds me. It's what supports me. When I, I just did this production, as I told you, Obia right. Opera, I had to be at work six days a week, 
You know, there was literally two and a half weeks where I barely saw my son. And there were moments where I had to ask my mom to come pick him up and, you know, where my husband had to, you know, be there for the middle of the night feeding or changing or soothing. And, and we all just had to take it on. Like we talked about it as a family. Hey, this is the upcoming gig. This is what it's going to require of me. Can we do this? Cause I need, I need you guys to be on board with me doing it as well. And when they're cool with it and they know that that's what I want to do and we all work together, then I know that I can let go of some of that anxiety about whether or not I have what it takes to make it happen. I can just focus on my work when it's time to focus on my work and know that my son is safe, my son is taken care of, my Mm -hmm. son is with grandma, my son is with daddy, you know. But for those 12 hours, I'm at the studio or... For those three and a half hours, I'm at rehearsal and like, that's what we're doing. And I have Mm -hmm. to be able to give it my whole focus and they allow me to do that. So I'm so, so grateful for that. I admire your communication, your super proactive communication with family and with your peers and colleagues, all that good stuff, because that is something that I see time and time again, even with just a conventional relationship. You know, I observe a lot of relationships and the way people interact. And a lot of people, and I, I don't know if it's a North American thing. I don't know if it's just a human thing. We leave a lot to be desired. And the fact that you remove the bullshit, and you just say, listen, this is the situation. How can we best move forward in the way that makes the most sense? Is this reasonable? Are you in? Cool. Okay, let's move forward. Mm-hmm. That is something that seems so simplistic and seems like it makes all the sense in the world, but it's something that's very hard mm. for people to do. And, and I think it's something that I'd love to encourage more of us to stand up and do in our life, mm-hmm. especially if there's a, a thing or a course or a hobby or a whatever, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. even if it's that self time, actually verbalizing that and trying to work out a plan to achieve that more. That's something that you've echoed a few times through this interview. And I, I really admire, and I thought it was worth calling out. Thank you. You got to yeah. voice the need, man. Yeah. <laughs> agreed. Agreed. Now that I have a little one, I'm like, we're teaching him everything from scratch, you know, yeah. and he has wants and stuff. So we're trying to teach him the best way to express those things without, you know, having a tantrum, for example, <laughs> right? So key key stages of saying, this is what I want, mom. Can I have it? How do we get it? You know, like, yeah, it's been a great lesson for me to like be able to voice my own needs and what's the right way to do that. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. Keep doing it. You're rocking <laughs> it. All right. Question eight. What item or items could you never live without? Oh, Okay, I'm like ridiculously attached to material things. <laughs> I know. There's no shame. I There's know no that shame is not that. an attractive quality, but no. there are certain things that if they disappeared, I would literally, I would not know what to do. Like uh, this ring, for example, is my grandma's ring. Ooh. It's and it's just, it's a simple, simple band, but I, I make sure, I'm always wearing it on stage, always. And before I walk out on stage, there's usually a little moment where I touch it and I talk to her and it gives me strength. You know, she's, she's always been, she had always been 
my greatest supporter in a lot of ways. And I don't forget that. Um, Little tokens like that of people that are really important to me, especially the ones that are no longer with me. Mm -hmm. Um, This other ring that I wear uh, was given to me by a person that was really important to me for many years and passed away last November. Oh, I'm so sorry. this is actually the, the first year without them. Mm-hmm. I love it. It looks like it was crafted by elves. Yeah, no, it's actually <laughs> it's like really, a, I'm, I'm a token ring. The, I love it. It's like very detailed. I'll take a picture of it. Sure. <laughs> but, it's beautiful. Uh, but yeah, so now, you know, whenever I feel like I want a reminder of that goodness that I had with that person or what they brought into my life, you know, I keep it close. Um... On a lighter note, Ricola's in my purse. Yeah, <laughs> Ricola. It is key. <laughs> um, yeah, that kind of stuff. Practical, practical, practical for stuff. singer. I, yeah. I, I always have a notebook in my purse or a mm-hmm. sketchbook. Um, those are the kinds of things that little comforts that I always want to have around. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. to capture any anything that inspires yeah, you. Songs, songs, or thoughts, plans. Mm-hmm. Big list maker, as I mentioned. So. Mm-hmm. Lots and lots of lists. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. With my pile of post-its. Mm-hmm, I like. <laughs> cool. Question nine is there anything you'd like to promote? Yes. <laughs> there is. Um, I should hope so. Yeah. No. Well, there's. I have a couple projects that are sort of in the works that I really want to talk to you about, but I'm going to restrain myself from talking about um, until they're a little bit closer to being done. Okay. But in the this, current... This might not air for a little while, so... Ah, you've got, well, you've got a good bit of to time. you got a bit of time. <laughs> that's cool. Um, well, on December 22nd, I'm going to be at Hugh's room. This and, might air uh, after that. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> no worries. If you guys heard it before then and you come that's amazing (laughs) and if you heard it after that then you missed a really good time but that's okay (laughs) there will be others um yeah so i i got a chance to record this album uh called muse Mm. with a band called teak collective tiki collective that was organized by james b our good friend james b ah james so (laughs) james i i like to call him the patron saint of singers because he just brings us all together and he i don't know he always he always finds a way to introduce the best women to each other Mm -hmm. so now after i think i've known him for oh man we're coming up on seven or eight years now right but now, since then, I like I have all these amazing girlfriends and they're all really good at what they do. And we're constantly having idea sharing sessions and brunches and this and that. And, you know, I'm so, so grateful. So he put us all in an album together called Muse. And uh, we've played a couple of times at Hugh's room. We've played a bunch at uh, Lula Lounge. And so we're going back for sort of a pre-Christmas show. On December 22nd. Oh. Yeah, so that, that'll be fun. If you can make it, you should come. I know. I'm, I'm going to be actually be away from the 21st, unfortunately. Which, <gasps> Where are you going? I know, India. Ah. So by the time this is released, I'll probably have just come back. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> I know, which is too bad because I, I would really love to see you perform. I again. think you have a really yeah. good reason. So I know, do not I fret know. about it. Small Just detail. see me when you get back and right. tell me lots of stories. And, uh, and, and Muse, is that also available on iTunes it and is. downloadable stuff? Okay, great. It is, absolutely. Fabulous. All my stuff is available on iTunes. Muse is available on iTunes. Great. Um, yeah, so definitely check it out. Fabulous. Any other works or gigs? Like, who are you typically playing with or have been playing with uh, in the past I, little while? I have been playing with Eric Saint Laurent mm-hmm. on guitar, and I cannot say enough good things about him. I like I love working with him so much. He he's the first Canadian musician to approach me about doing Peruvian music. Oh, which I know I might not sound like the reason why that is super cool to me is because, uh, well, one, I love music from my homeland. Yes. But there are very few opportunities in which I get a chance to showcase it in Canada. Mm -hmm. And Eric has such an open ear and he loves world music. And he's such an accomplished and proficient musician that he listens to something like that and he's like, this is awesome. Let's do it. Do you want to do it? <laughs> so I was literally like moved to tears doing these gigs with him after we had this conversation and playing music from my homeland. He was not intimidated by the material. He was super keen to do it and he made it sound beautiful and it reminded me like I was in Lima. Aww. So I'm really grateful uh, to him. And Where, uh, can we find that online anywhere? Oh, no, not oh. yet, not yet, not yet. But, um, but that does kind of tie into this project that I'm in the process of developing, which cool. is um, an origin showcase oh. in which I shall take you, the listener, on a journey from Lima to Toronto cool. and all the places that I've been in between and the music that has taught me and shaped me along wow. that journey. What is that going to look like a show or is that going to look like an album? That's a great question. Well, in its current manifestation, it's Mm -hmm. going to look like a show. Cool. Um, But I would very much like to have my first solo record uh, truly encapsulate where I've come from and where I've been. And I think the best way to do that is to merge these two worlds. So... I hope the people that enjoy my music are interested in learning a little bit more about Peru and Peruvian music and hearing about those experiences and that shaped me. I sure am. (laughs) Do you have a projected approximate timeline as to when you're hoping to get things going on that spring? Spring. Yeah. Spring. Cause right, right now I'm, I'm, applying for some grants and I'm sort of working on getting the material together and we're sort of workshopping that material. So I want, I really want to do it right. I, I think that, um, I've been waiting for like 15 years to do this. So I, I want us to all be happy with it. I love it. And where can our listeners find your next gigs online? Well, you can always find information about the sugar devils at www www.thesugardevils.com. <laughs> um, so, and I, for those of you that don't know, I have a band called Irene Torres and the Sugar Devils. And that has been my main project and main love for the last seven years now. 
And when I talk to you about my brothers in music, that's who I'm talking about. Um, but also in the last year, I've had a lot of opportunity to do solo stuff and, and work with jazz musicians and other uh, Afro-Peruvian musicians. And that's been really feeding my soul. So I'm looking forward to sharing some more of that. Ooh, I can't wait to hear more of that. That's amazing. <laughs> yep. And how we met back in the day. That's right. Yep. That's so you true. You and your sugar devils. <laughs> oh my gosh. Actually, that night was the night that I met my husband. Oh, really? At the blues dancing? At the, no, not the blues oh. dancing. I, okay, that's true. We that, did meet that night. Technically, that's when we met. That was yeah, the yeah. first night. But the first time that we did the, like a the show, gay, show yeah, together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The one at Re- Revival. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Oh. Okay, well, we'll have to chat more offline on that. Absolutely. (laughs) Oh, that's so funny. Small world. (laughs) All right, let's round things off to Mm -hmm. question 10. What is a lesson you learned the hard way that you'd like to share with our listeners? Hmm. I know you've already shared a lot. I know. I feel like I learned some hard lessons and shared them with you already. But I, I literally have a song on the In the Details album called Gonna Learn the Hard Way. <laughs> really? Oh, gosh. <laughs> and I joke that that's the only way that I know how to learn. But but in that particular instance, that song is about um, letting go of the ideal that you want something to be and seeing it for what it is based on its actions, for lack of a better term. So, you know, um, I think it's really important to listen to your intuition. And that is a lesson that I learned the hard way, not listening. But I think also seeing actions and what they denote about a person's ideals or value system is really important. You know, and sometimes we're really quick to brush that off and just make small talk with somebody because we can, Mm -hmm. you know, but there's been a few instances in which, you know, I've heard somebody say something, I don't know, really racist or, you know, Mm -hmm. really sexist or just really tone deaf for the world today. And I've had to accept that that's part of how they think Mm -hmm. and that we're not going to, we're not the same. We're not Mm -hmm. necessarily going to connect on those things. And accepting that and still loving people, I think is, is an important lesson. Um, and I wish that I had learned that younger in life because perhaps I would have spent more time surrounding myself with, um, I don't know, people that share my drive or I don't know. I don't really know how to answer that because as I'm saying this to you, I realize that it's really valuable to be surrounded by lots of people that are motivated by different things, different mm-hmm. ideologies. And, and that's part of the richness in life as well. Mm-hmm. But I guess what I'm trying to say is a lesson that I wish that I had learned back in life when I was younger is that people's actions tell you more than what they express. Right. You know, with words. It's true. And sometimes they're totally different things. So they'll say the right things to be perceived in a particular way, in a favorable way. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh yeah, you know, I love women. I support this. This is whatever. But their actions do not align very well with the things that they try to put out there. Yeah. And then that disconnect 
especially if it's something that they are aware of, leads to to maybe view them as a bit of a sociopath or they're just blissfully unaware, which is also a decision that you can make. Hey, is this a person who is clearly not self-aware? Is this a person who is worth my emotional energy? Sure. Sure. I think that like that disconnect, the Mm -hmm. way that you just said that that's so key, you know, because when somebody is disconnected from the actions they're taking, there's something not right there. Yeah. And in our own pursuits of being, you know, our complete selves of being in a person of integrity of having some kind of code, you know, like I think Mm -hmm. all these things are super important from a philosophical standpoint. I think that's what's going to help us as humans sort of get through the next corner. Yeah. And it's important that other people also know themselves and mm. their actions line up with who they seem to want to manifest themselves to be. Agreed. So don't say things and do things that are in the absolute opposite directions. And <laughs> if you see that go on, feel free to call it out. Yeah. Make good decisions about the people you surround yourself with. Um, it's a a fine line between creating an echo chamber of people who just think the exact same way as you sure, and being able to have people who you can challenge and challenge back in a healthy way Mm -hmm. that isn't just sucking your emotional energy. Yeah. Right. So that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. There's only so much you have to give. So make sure you give it to the, to the people that deserve it, you know? What's that saying? Do not cast your pearls before swine or something like that. I, I'm lacking in my biblical knowledge, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that was said somewhere. I'm not the right person to be able to <laughs> confirm or deny. So I'll, I'll just say, yes, yes, you're totally right. <laughs> oh, can I give a different answer? Can I, can I give a different answer to your last question? You can add and change your answer, whatever. This is your podcast. Okay. So let's pretend <laughs> that I didn't give that answer. Okay. <laughs> if you were to ask me, what is something that I wish that I had known? Is that, was that the question? What is the lesson you learned the hard way that you'd like to share with our listeners? Part two. Part two. <laughs> um, it's really, I think a lesson that I learned the hard way or took for granted when I had the opportunity is that like how important it is to feed uh, your sense of self. That foundation that you have as of who you are Mm. is made up of a lot of things. Sure, it's made up of experiences. It's made up of all the books that you've read, all the movies that you've seen, all those moments that you've had, right? And I think um, there were different points in my life where I was more keen to explore that, to read a lot more, you know, to read about philosophy and literature and poetry and history and you know, to really value the pursuit of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And there were times where I slacked <laughs> on that. <laughs> and the moments that I, I really valued that are the moments that I'm still drawing from now. Mm. So I think that we should continuously explore and that I wish that I had known that that was a worthwhile pursuit of my time um, because I probably would have done it a lot more but it's not too late for me to do it now. So I'm doing it now. Yes, you are. <laughs> Irene, thank you. It's been such a pleasure to have you. You are a brave, intelligent, incredible soul. And we're so lucky to have been able to be here with you today. Aw, thank you. Cheers. Yeah, cheers. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks for listening to all my stories. Yes, ma'am. Anytime. <laughs>
Thanks for listening, everyone. Find us on Facebook at Legit Lady Podcast. That's L-E-G-I-T-L-A-D-Y Podcast. And on Instagram at Legit Lady Podcast. On Twitter at Legit Lady Pod. That's Legit Lady P-O-D. And please rate and comment on iTunes and anywhere else you get your podcasts. If you love what you hear, share it broadly and proudly. Thanks, everyone.